Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Paul Simington's family has been associated with the Douro Valley and the port trade for 13 generations. So you could say that Portugal's great fortified wine is in his blood. Listen to us chat about the region's extensive lineup of grapes, why port has fared better than sherry in Madeira over the last 30 years, and how Simington family estates are coping with the challenges of climate change. Hello, Paul. How are you? Hi, Tim. Yeah, good to see you. I'm fine. Well, likewise. And I'm, you're in a porto, I'm pretty sure, aren't you? I'm in a porto on a day that is like summer outside. It's completely uh, mad. Um, it's like it's 23 degrees and it should be pouring with rain. We're a bit worried, frankly. <laughs> I know farmers always complain, but we really need rain right now um, because otherwise we get it in spring when it's not when the vines are very sensitive. Yeah. Or, or, or we get it. We don't get it at all, and uh, the vines won't last. So we're we're actually it really li- literally hasn't rained properly since September. Really wow. weird. I mean, is is that the driest winter you've seen? Yes, so far. I mean, and uh, you know they're they're already talking about rationing water for for houses. So in January, February is, is bizarre. Anyway, uh, this this is the world we live in now. Uh, it's a bit strange. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we'll talk about that a bit a bit later because I know you've got quite strong opinions about climate change and you're kind of planning for it as for the future you guys as not as much as you can really we are yeah just i want to start with family i like doing this because families inform what we all are in a way and you're the fourth generation of your family to make wine in the duro but your connection goes back way further than that i didn't realize until i started researching you 13 generations, isn't it? Something like that. I mean, if you've done a family tree of all these Simmingtons going back over these <laughs> centuries. I, I did. You know, in the past, the sort of wives were more or less written out of the script. And when I started looking at uh, the wives in our family, I discovered that my great-grandfather had married a woman here who was half English, half Portuguese. Her English side had been here since uh, 1815, so the year of Waterloo. And her father was in Offley Forester, and her uh, and her brother was in Smith Woodhouse, so other port companies. But her, but her, she was descended from an English consul in a porter called Walter Maynard in in sixteen who shipped port in 1652, and he was he he was appointed by Oliver Cromwell for heaven's sake, you know, and um and and he was obviously like a lot of sort of civil servants he kept a little line in with the stuarts so when the restoration came um and charles ii was restored to the throne charles ii confirmed him in his place so he obviously was quite quite an agile diplomat <laughs> a seamless uh, transition from from from, from yeah, cromwell yeah. back quite to clever. the stuarts survival really but yeah so on my great grandmother's side uh, but then then through her we have um, the Hanseatic League. There were a lot of German merchants uh, here in Oporto. And to my, my father was a bit shocked when I told him that he had German ancestry. Um, <laughs> but um, we have some, some people called Henkel and Mooring because the Hanseatic League, you know, around the North Germany and the Baltic states were great traders and traded a lot with the UK. And they traded down here. So we have um, people called Henkel and Mooring and then Van Zellers. 
through my great-grandmother. So they weren't Symingtons, but they're definitely our ancestors. So, yeah, I mean, you know, we were all born with caught in our blood. It's a bit weird, but we're real Mongols because we have a little bit of, um, we have a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, Dutch from the Van Zellers, German, um, bit of Irish, Portuguese, English and Scottish. So we really are a mongrel race, um, us lot, um, even though we were all packed off to school in England, which we all hated and taught to speak proper. Um, and <laughs> But we, you know, we don't really feel much at home in England. Um, uh, you know, this is rare. We do. We sound very English, but it's our home. Yeah, not many of us do these days for some reason. But I mean, I'm interested in family businesses general, generally because yours is one that's that survived and prospered. I mean, many of them struggle, especially it seems to be when they get to the third generation. I just wonder, what's the secret of a good family business? Because you're fifth generation, your kids are already in place, aren't they? Part they of the are. business. I mean, how, how do you keep these things going? Uh, well, it, it's a it's a it's a good question and a difficult one to answer. I mean, I I I for, wine is as you because Tim, you're wine through and through like me. So we th- there's there's a huge attraction to what we do. Um, it, you know, it's a one. I mean, I know you travel a lot to South America, Spain, all over the place, and and there's something very special about the vineyards and the places. So even in the really tough times, and our family went through some really, really tough times, like any other family uh, in the f- late 30s, 40s, and 50s, there was a huge attraction to the place where we live, our vineyards, um, the place, that, you know, vineyard that had planted by one's father or grandfather. So uh, even in the tough times, there's quite a strong pull to sort of stay and, and uh, to, to a very beautiful place. Um, but obviously, you, that's not uh, a survival strategy. You need uh, to, to have it minimally viable. Um, and, and luckily, we were in the right place when things started to pick up again. So I think wine does help uh, families uh, encourage them to continue. We drink wine made by our, you know, especially with vintage port, brings back memories. All these things sort of encourage us to sort of, you know, knuckle down and try and keep going. The other thing, which I think in our case worked quite well, was my great-grandfather said he was going to retire at 65. My grandfather retired at 65. My dad did. And I've just retired at 65. And I felt a real, a bit of a skiver. You know, I thought I was sort of dodging, dodging um, my job because, I'm, you know, I don't feel particularly old. I know I've got white hair and it's all a bit thin <laughs> on the top. But... Um, I, I, I did see other port companies here where the old patriarchs stayed on into their mm-hmm. uh, 80s mm-hmm. and they basically drove away their, their their children who were in their 40s and really wanted to do stuff, you know, new stuff in the vineyards, in the winery. And I think that I, we inherited this tradition um, and I think it's probably quite a good one because it really gives the next generation a chance to do their thing. And if the old hand stays on the tiller too long, you can really, you know, um, alienate people. So it's a mixture. I don't really know. Um, But uh, the other thing, yes, there is one very important factor. I was taught from a very young age to say we, never I. You know, this is not my port company. It's our port company. Hmm. And we've always felt, um, well, basically, my great-grandfather divided the company between his three sons. And they each had a third. So none of us dominates. We all need the others. So we've all felt like sort of trustees, uh, sort of guardians. I, I don't want to sound pretentious, but, <laughs> you know, I never felt this is all mine. 
I felt it was yeah. me and my cousins uh, and my brother. And I, I think that's quite a good lesson. If you mm. think it's all yours, it, 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 you take a slightly different attitude to um, to what you're doing. And we, it was drilled into us. Mm. Pass it on better than you got it. Yeah, the like vineyard's that. got to be in great shape. Your your reputation for your wines in the market's got to be in great shape. And it's not only your salary. You'll get a nod from the older generation, look, a little pat on the back. Like um, I, I suppose it was effing well packed off to public school where you were either beaten or patted on the back by your teacher. And I think that sort of probably sunk into us a bit. But yeah, so I, 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 I'm just giving you really a summary, but no, I, like- I have thought about it and I think those are really the issues. I like those. I mean, you've talked a little bit about this sort of mongrel background in a sense, you know, that the, the bits of your family come from all over the places. But do, do, do British-owned, in inverted commas, porthouses identify as being British in a sense? I mean, are they very different from Portuguese-owned ones? I just wonder if you, all you Brits kind of rub along together when you're having dinner at the factory house or something like that. Is there a distinction between Portuguese-owned and, and British-owned these days? I, I would say back in 79, when I came back to start working with my dad, I think there was very much, um, and, uh, and a rather uncomfortable, I never liked it, and there would have been a distinction like, like you just described. But I... I um, I don't like it. I never felt comfortable with it. My mum uh, is half Portuguese. My grandmother, on her, her mother was Portuguese from Lisbon. Mum was born in Lisbon. Um, I never liked that. My sister's married to Portuguese. Peter, my uh, cousin, uh, his wife's Portuguese. Charles, our head winemaker, is half Portuguese through her. Um, we, I would say there's been a big change over the last uh, 30, 40 years. And I would say now there's very little difference Um it's more the style of the different companies. Some of some we're very close to. Hmm. Um, I mean, Charles's best friend is Georges Rosas, who runs Ramos Pinto. You know, he really is his best mate. Hmm. And um, uh, you know, I know Georges very well. He's a really nice bloke. I, I would say that was one of the big changes: is uh, this closed British community here looking inwards, yeah. um, which I never liked very much. And hmm. thank goodness most of that has fallen away. Hmm. And uh, um, and and I think uh, that was not a healthy uh, situation. And we all see ourselves pretty much in the same boat, trying to do the same thing. The same and there's quite thing. a lot of mutual respect. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I'm just interested in, in the Duro. I mean, it's an unbelievably beautiful place. And what makes it such a unique place to grow grapes? You've described it, I think, rightly, as the largest area of mountain vineyard on the planet. I mean, just briefly, tell us tell us about the Duro. What makes the Duro such an amazing well, place to grow Well, it... it uh, I mean, you know, dad never thought about it as a mountain vineyard because we had, you know, there were, Portugal was a very rural economy and there were plenty of people to help work in the vineyards. Mm. And um, with the, Portugal joining the um, European Union in the 80s, we got a, a wake up a punch on the nose, which was quite dramatic. And we're still learning to cope with it because of the costs of, of maintaining those vineyards. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, the, the Douro River, um, uh, it starts northeast of Madrid and comes all across the Spanish plain through some mm. great vineyard areas, as you know. You know mm. them better than most. Mm. Um, Valladolid and mm. Ribera del Duero and mm. places like Vega Sicilia, only 300 kilometers away from where I'm sitting now. And um, and But it's a 1,000 kilometers high. Uh, sorry, a 1,000 meters high up there. You know, it's the Spanish plateau. It's really very high. I mean, Vega starts picking late October because they have such cool nights and they pick much later than us. Uh, when the Douro reaches the uh, the border with Portugal, 
it meets this um, uh, huge outcrop of soft schistous rock. And it's just carved this incredible gorge. Um, And, you know, at Bonfine, we're only 90 uh, meters above sea level. Uh, Yet uh, on our western side, between us and the coast, is a range of mountains higher than Ben Nevis, um, 1,400 meters high. And and so we have this uh, curious combination of um, the schistous rock, uh, we have granite north of us and granite south of us and granite west of us, but it's all schistous rock there. And we have this giant range of mountains on our left, which keeps the rain uh, away, a lot of it. Um, and uh, the combination of that with our own indigenous grape varieties gives this extraordinary um, unique wines, port and increasingly Dura wines. So it, it's a very special region. Um, the river is magnificent. The hillsides are, 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 are beautiful, as you know. And now we've got some data from this an Italian institute, which has classified the world's vineyards. And they say that we have 53% of the world's steep mountain vineyard right here, which wow. is an extraordinary, um, uh, you know, h- high, you know, considering the Moselle. And I know Chile has high vineyards, but not all of them are steep. No. Ours are very steep. And we have, it gives problems with erosion, but it is very beautiful, but very challenging to farm. Mm. And I mean, that, that list of varieties, I don't know if anybody's ever done a, a definitive list of the Duro's grape varieties, but there were at least, what, 50 of them, aren't there? I would have thought. Yeah, yeah. I, I just yeah. wonder, you know, we, we, I mean, they're lesser and lesser and, and, and better ones in a sense, but I, I just wonder, are there any of them that you think really stand out? Well, yes. I mean, I think, I mean, um, my, one of my oldest friends, uh, João Nicolau Valmeida, again from Ramspinto, he's retired now, but he's a great mate of mine. He, he with his uncle, uh, did research in the 70s um, uh, on grape varieties and came up with the, well, the magnificent five that were called at the time, the great five, Turiga Nacional, uh, Turiga Franca, Baroque, Tinto Rorish, and Tinto Cal. Um, and, and, uh, and, and the others were almost forgotten, but we, 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 the others are coming back because with climate change, um, we're increasingly looking at uh, these other ones to see which ones can add uh, new ones. I mean, my cousin Charles has become a real... Um, f- um, um, champion for Suzanne, which was virtually forgotten, uh, but it's got r- lovely high acidity and, and lovely colour. Um, and we've we've been planting in recent years uh, much more Suzanne, whereas Suzanne was never mentioned. I think Joao's work was brilliant, and he clearly identified the two greats, uh, the two Turigas, which really are the backbone of great wines in the Douro, both great ports and. Uh, Franca, you're right; there are Franca over fifty great varieties. Sorry? Franca Nacional, those two Tarigas. Th- those two yeah. are, you know, Bruno Pratt. You, I, mm. I know you can ask me about our Crusader project, but Bruno um, is a very interesting guy. You know, he took Costa Stanel to the top of the Super Seconds in Bordeaux, and we worked with him here for over 20 years. And he was a very fresh pair of eyes, uh, or fresh palate, if you like. And, and he, uh, you know, we, we had our own things, but we're, we're rather sort of stuck in our ways. So it was quite nice to have somebody coming from outside and he he loves those two great varieties. Mm. And um, uh, but but I mean we planted in 2014 53 rare grape varieties uh, up at Quinta do Uh and and it's you know it's work in progress. That, that that was whatever it is eight years ago now. But um, but we 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 don't have definitive um, um, uh, decisions yet. But we've done lots of 200 uh, vines of each, so enough to make some micro vinifications. And um, and you know we're learning all the time about what uh, what can cope better with um, 
climate change and and you know even putting climate change aside, which we can't, um, but which which can produce really interesting wines. But yeah, we have we have a huge range of grape varieties. Um, uh, some aren't very good. Barocca, which is one of the greats, is losing. Um, a, I've got Barocca on my own small, my own personal vineyard, and it gets caned every now and again because it's got very thin. They're big, nice berries. The farmers love it because there's uh, <laughs> you know, quite a lot of weight, yeah, yeah. but but it's got thin skin. And when if you have a scalding uh, few days, the Barocca um, looks appalling. Um, mm. So from being a much loved grape variety. And being a bit of a Merlot uh, type, sort of you, you know, the backbone of, of a of of a great blend, it, it's it's losing uh, fashion because um, because it's so susceptible to heat. Um, so you know, all of these things are in constant flux right mm. now. I mean, do any of these grapes work well as as varietal wines on their own, or do most great ports and, and red wines? Uh, we're not allowed to on port. Yeah. Um, well, you're allowed to make it 100% from Turiga Nacional, but you can't if you wanted to, but you couldn't uh, put that on your label. But on table, on the Dura wines, you are allowed to. And there's some really lovely Turigas, uh, 100% Turiga Nacional. I personally prefer a blend, I think the Franca, with its more aromatic um, skills. Uh, I, I, I think it's a blend. I do, I, you know, I've got a friend in the Dura near, near me who... Um, he's a doctor here in the Porto, George Tenreira, and he's got a, um, a, a 100% Tariga Nacional, which is really lovely. Um, so, yeah, but I, I think that you won't see varieties so much on port, hmm. but on Dura wines, I think some of them really do stand out well. But though I do think the ultimate icon wines will be blends. Will be blends, yeah. yeah. I'm just interested in whether a, a good port vineyard is a good table wine vineyard and vice versa, or are those two styles so different that you're looking at completely different sides? 20 years ago, I would have given you one answer, and now I'll give you another answer because <laughs> I've learned. Um, I, I, I think originally we thought that a vineyard that made a great vintage port would make a great red wine. It, it just, uh, it was the only, it was the only uh, guideline we could give ourselves. We knew that the, from, you know, family, that this place would always make great wine. And that's what we said to Bruno when he first came here in the late 90s. Look, that place, so let's use these grapes because they've always made great vintage port. We could give you a few. You can't have very many because we still want to make our port. You know, and, and we had some very amusing tussles with Bruno because he said, no, I want a bit more. And we said, you know, you bloody well can't because those are for our great ports. And initially we were making the, our best red wines from the same one. But what's happened recently, uh, over the last 20 years is we've moved uphill, uh, up, the, up the hillside because increasingly we're looking for natural acidity and freshness for the red wines, whereas on the ports you need that real concentrated focus and heat. So we, we, uh, some of the, the vines or vineyards overlap, but more and more of the better Dura wines are now uh, having an increasing component from vineyards up to two, three, four hundred meters high. And, um, you know, uh, my dad died in 2013, but I remember as if it was yesterday him saying, um, uh, well, the vintage nearly uh, over now. We're just doing the Altus, and uh, and the Altus was just making the cheaper ruby ports. Mm -hmm. uh, the grapes were coming in, and nobody bought. You know, we were all tired. It'd been sort of four weeks of uh, non-stop harvest, seven days a week, as you know. And um, we were well. Now you don't have to bother too much. We got another five or six days just doing the Altus. Now the Altus are increasingly uh, sought after. 
because of the cool nights. And, and the altitude uh, of the high vineyards, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so while the geography of the Doru is really uh, um, a challenging and expensive for us all with all the erosion problems, and it's actually given us a, a, a real um, safety net in terms of global uh, warming because uh, the, the temperature difference is so much, uh, so much, um, it's radically different. It's about a degree per 100 meters. Um, and I mean, my own small vineyard is up at 450. Mm. And we, I often drive down with the kids to the river um, and when we come back up, you know, we're two degrees cooler up, up, up high, and, and you can imagine the impact that has on on the wines. Huge. Tell me a little bit about your about your port styles. I mean, because you've got four port houses: Dow's, Graham's, War, which is sort of historic, and Coburn's, yeah, which you acquired more recently when you were chairman of the company. Uh, just tell us about about the stylistic differences between them. I know people argue about this. Is you know, is Graham sweeter? Is War's a bit more austere? You know, is Dow's more powerful? How, how do you see it? Well, the the, the 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 first thing to say is that the, what, what would really uh, finish us off is if you or Jancis or uh, you know the people in the U.S. were to taste our, our new declaration vintage port and you, you to find them all rather similar, that that would be a killer for us. Um, so we we really do respect the um, and work very hard to preserve the historic identity of each one each one, but they come from very different. Um, uh, vineyards and di- very different places. Coburn's is 100% from the Doris Superior, which is right up against the Spanish frontier. Um, Quinta dos Canais, o- opposite Vigelas, which is the Taylor Quinta, um, is a very uh, warm and hot uh, uh, area. And um, all the Dur- all the Coburn vineyards are from up there. So that's the Coburn style. Wars is right next to me and my little um, uh, vineyard. Uh, you know, I own part of Wars because it's my family, but I own a, a vineyard of my own right next door. And and and, and Wars is the opposite of Coburn's. It's it's high next to me. It's high, so it's late, picked much much later, much uh, much higher acidity, more elegant, more feminine wine. Yeah. Um, Dow's is a very intense, focused, uh, linear wine, difficult to taste when it's young. Um, uh, because it's it's not got that rich, generous uh, sweetness you'd find in a Graham or a Fonseca. Um, but it's the function of its two vineyards. Bonfing is south-facing, low-lying, picked early because it's hot. And then Graham's is, uh, always had this big, rich, generous style, which is what Malvedus gives. So we basically um, uh, identify the wines with the places they come from. And the other thing is, We've, uh, we, we're a bit bonkers. The, our Australian friends, people like Robert Hill Smith, think we're start raving bonkers. But we run six different wineries in the Doro because uh, we don't like uh, trucking grapes from the Doro Supreme all the way down to Quinta de Sol. So um, uh, Canage has its own winery, Vesuvio does, Senora de Ribeira and Bonfim, and Cavadinha. And they all make about 800, well, one, one or two make about 1,000 barrels. Um, Cavadinha makes about 800. And um, so we, we not only do we have their, their own vineyards, but we're making the top wines on their own uh, small vineyard. We have one big winery, which makes a lot of uh, wine down at King to the Sol. And obviously we're making the, the more ordinary ports, everyday ports down there. Hmm. But it's, it's for us, the identity is really, really important. Interesting. I mean, I'm interested in, in the fortified wine uh, sector in a way because it's it's in decline in many senses I and mean, we look at sherry but ports really bucked the trend doesn't it i mean i just wonder why that was is it 
luck, judgment, marketing, wine quality. But what was it that meant that port has prospered while sherry has not? Really? Tim, I think we were very lucky. We we had something that sherry and Madeira um, uh, didn't have, which was vintage port. Mm. Uh, the, 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 we had the same tough times, and you're right. The, the global fortified market has been in decline uh, for about 30 years now. Um, and Australian fortifieds, which used to be the backbone, and as you know, in South Africa. But um, but but with Port, we had this great, wonderful heritage of the great, you know, the 1908s, the the vintage ports from the 1800s, which were sort of legends and had been auctioned through Christie's and Sotheby's, and that gave an aura around even our humble ruby ports. Um, you know, I think that uh, when people were drinking. Just buying an ordinary bottle of port, they would somewhere in the back of their mind would be um, that the you know the great regimental dinners would be some great port would be, <laughs> and it helped us a hell of a lot, you know. Yeah. Uh, and and so I mean today I just, I saw you know I knew you were going to ask me this because you'd you'd, you'd warn me and I had a quick look um, last year uh, sorry 2019 because 2020 was a COVID year so it was a bit strange but. Um, in, in 2019, for the to- total all port companies, 23% of all port sales by volume were were premium quality. Uh, in other words, above Ruby Tony White, um, but by value it was 45%. So we we have uh, whereas our overall volume has has been declining, uh, not as dramatically as as other fortifieds, but it, it has come down. But our value has gone up because. Um, we, we, we've managed to keep this great awe around the rare and fantastic vintage port declarations, our old tawny ports. And then in the 60s, the introduction of reserve ports and um, old to- um, LBVs has given us a really nice sort of um, uh, and, and very important uh, high premium quality image. Um, I think, I personally think that the overall volume will probably flatten out a bit, but might decline a bit more. Um, but but the premium, thank goodness, has really stayed very strong. So I think we were lucky, and then there was some good marketing. Yeah. Also, we've, we've got a lot better at the port making. You know, I think that there's been a, a you know, new generation of winemakers uh, willing to innovate, uh, be brave. And, uh, you know, thank goodness, because... Um, <laughs> You know, Sherry didn't have that. Um, and they've done some brilliant things with the Arama and lovely, you know, I think the best priority for the world is a lovely Fino. Um, uh, so I love Sherry. But they didn't have this vintage port thing, which we luckily did. Yeah, interesting. I mean, what made you sort of shift, um, I mean, not massively, but but significantly into table wines in a serious way in the 90s? I mean, Barcavelia you know, was the first, was first made in 52 and showed that the potential was there for really top Duro Reds. Were you tempted before that to kind of try and do a, a Barcavelia or what, what changed your mind in the 90s? I think it was a generational shift. I, I think that my father's generation found it very difficult to think that we could make great, great red wines in the Duro. And, um, and my, my cousin, Peter, who was the head winemaker and taster, was of, of my father's generation. And it's when Charles came in, his son, uh, he did uh, enology at, uh, at uh, Logroño in Rioja. And um, he came back, like a lot of uh, um, uh, that generation, with, with, uh, with an urge to try and do something with wine, uh, which I think it would have been difficult 
to have um, done it under my father's time because mm. they were so steeped in port. Mm. I think it was a generational change. And, you know, all credit to Juan Nicolau Almeida's uh, father, uh, Fernando, who was absolutely brilliant, who, who created Barca Velha. Um, but he, it was a bit of a one-off and it took a long time. And then Ramos Pinto introduced Jewish Quintos and things. Dirk um, uh, did a great pioneering job. Uh, and, I, and I think we were... You know, they started more in the early 90s. We started more in the later 90s. But uh, I would say it's still work in progress. But, yeah, I, I think it was more of a generational thing. You know, we were very port, tradi <laughs> too traditional in a way. Yeah. David Baverstock used to work for us, and mm. he was itching to make uh, 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 red wine. The great Aussie uh, winemaker. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And he went down and made a, did a, a sensational job for Ish Brown. And I, 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 you know... I'm kicking myself because he could have done, you know, we didn't let him. Yeah, How stupid. Yeah. Tell, I mean, you've mentioned Bruno and Bruno's been a, a guest on the show. Fascinating guy. Just tell us quickly how, how that project came about with Crisea and, and the joint venture with Bruno. And, and also, and did you expect it to be as successful as it's been? I mean, it's, it's done brilliantly. Um, well, we, we, we became friends with him through the PFE. There's a group of 12 European wine families. There's only one rule. They've got to be people you like to enjoy a bottle of wine with, and they have to be <laughs> seriously. We don't want people who we don't want to have fun with, and, they, um, and um, we they've got to be amongst the best in their region, and they must be family owned. Those are just the nice people uh, making good wine and family owned. And Bruno was one of them, and um, uh, but very sadly, he had a brother who um, who, who wasn't in the business. And as you know, French inheritance mm. laws are absolutely draconian. Mm. So he had to sell costs and he had to leave. He mm. had to leave the PFE. But mm. he had become a great friend of my cousin James. They were the same sort of age. And Bruno uh, uh, said, look, why don't we do something in the Douro? And we, we thought, well, this is great because we don't know anything about making great red wines. And he had a, a huge career, um, illustrious career in Bordeaux. And, and so it really came, you know, over conversations and, and yeah, it's, it's worked better than I think they and we could ever have, uh, have dreamt. Um, you know, I was, I remember talking to him and to Charles saying, look, you know, look at, um, look at Sassicaia and uh, Tignanello. They've got Cabernet um, in there. And I think we need to plant some Cabernet. I mean, I've never seen a Dura wine with lovely aromas and, you know, and, and that lovely flavors that you get on these great, uh, uh, Bordeaux blends, um, I, you know, from Berkelecken or wherever you want to. And uh, I was 100% wrong. Thank God. <laughs> I mean, you know, we, 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 Prisea hasn't got a drop of, um, of any uh, of these international grape varieties in. And, um, you know, as we went along, we found that the wines were getting better and better. Bruno guiding us a lot, mm. us guiding him about the location and the varieties, him guiding us on vinification and um, um and, and it's been you know we're i would say we're as close as a family um to him as we were when we started over 20 years ago so it's it's quite fun you know we only make two and a half or maybe three thousand cases of crusader a year yeah um but you know it's one of the three or four icon wines of the dura which mm. is really really you know very satisfying mm. Let, let's talk a little bit about climate change we started talking about that at the beginning of the chat you know, you've got a warm day there. You've had almost no rain during the winter. Just tell us how it's affecting the Douro and what you can do as, as, as producers and as landowners. I mean, you guys have got, what, 
uh, over a thousand hectares of vineyards in the Jura Valley. What you what can you do to help? Yeah, yeah, it's it's really worrying. I mean, it's really worrying. Whereas climate change will change the style of Burgundy and Champagne and even of the English uh, sparkling wine and will change the style of Bordeaux. With us, it's ex- existential. I can't even say the word. Existential. Um, because, yeah. 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 <laughs> and I haven't been drinking. Um, I, um, it, 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 because the heat, you know, we are getting more days of over 40 degrees uh, um, C in the shade in, in uh, spikes in July and August. And the, the, the vines, can, the, our grape varieties are very well adapted to heat to the extent that, amazingly, Bordeaux has just approved Tourigue Nationale as one of the approved grape varieties for Bordeaux, which is amazing. But it's because, A, it produces lovely wine, and B, it resists heat remarkably well. But there's a point beyond which it can't. And um, I, I, it is worrying. I, I, when I look at the eastern end of the Douro, which is much hotter. Towards Spain, um, yeah. It, yeah. it really, yeah. It, it, yeah, it is worrying. It really is worrying. So we ha- we we have the altitude to, to as a as a as a help, um, which but you know even that won't last forever. Mm-hmm. Um, what are we doing? Well, when I came back to work with Dad after my school and uni in the UK, um, the picking dates were normally around the twenty sixth of September, twenty eighth um, towards the end of September. We now start picking at the end of August, so. Wow. We, we've been forced to start picking a month, four weeks earlier than we used to do. So that's just to try and get the grapes at the right time. We've got ir- irrigation in some of our vineyards. But, I mean, the Douro is probably the last great uh, large vineyard area in the, in the hot areas, which is uh, very little of it is irrigation. I mean, all my, my own um, 34 hectares of vines, I haven't got a, a single drop of uh, irrigation. I don't, I'm not near the river. I don't have any water. Um, but quite a lot of the vineyards by the river now have irrigation. Um, but the government, sooner or later, is going to whack big taxes on that. You know, at the moment, you pay for virtually nothing. You just have to have a license. But they're not going to, especially with a winter like this, they won't let us pump water out of the river. So irrigation in some places is helping. Earlier picking dates, we're, we've changed our pruning to give much more uh, leaf cover. Um, We've we've um, we've experimented with some weird things. We've experimented spraying the vines with an inert white um, uh, substance to try and reflect the heat, but the winemakers don't like that very much for obvious re- reasons. I mean, it is you know it is an inert, uh, but it's basically a sunscreen, you know, like one puts on one's kid, grandchildren. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I, honestly, we need to tackle t- climate change properly. Because we can do a lot of adaptations in the Douro, and some have been done, pruning and uh, picking and irrigation and altitude. But ultimately, we have to stop the, the, the bloody temperatures going too high because we, we are on the edge. You know, we're, we're in a hotter region than um, all the French vineyards. Uh, the, I mean, we're in the PFE with the parents, and we have a, quite a lot of, we talk to the parents quite a lot because, as you know, they're not that far north of Marseille. Yeah, and so they're having the same problems as us with, um, you know, some pretty hot uh, days. So we exchange a lot of information with them. Um, the Italians, you know, uh, uh, also have that problem. But yeah, it's this is quite serious for us. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, I, I find it. I, I look back at my career and have a lot of satisfaction on some things. I, I balls up quite a few things as well. But I, I generally, I think, I'm on the positive side. But 
Uh, I do walk around and look at my olive trees and almond trees and my vines and think, you know, I really, I've now got six grandchildren. They're all five, six, and they run around the vineyards. I would hate to think that that wasn't all there in 20, 30, 40 mm-hmm. years from now. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's, it's really, it's quite serious. Do you think that's a possibility? I think at the eastern end, that we, we've, um, one of our viticultural engineers, we call them engineers here, but he, Fernando Alves, he's a research guy, he's brilliant. Uh, he said, Paul, I'm going to do something here. I'm just going to turn off these two rows up at Quinta do Etei to see how it gets through the summer because we have irrigation up there. They died. The, the two rows just died. I mean, wow. the heat was just too much for them. Yeah. Uh, and, and in some cases, when we've got irrigation and it's very, very hot, and we put the we don't water very much. I mean, if you overwater, you, you as you know, you, you 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 ruin your wine or ruin the quality of your wine. But in in, in some cases, the uh, heat is so intense that even with the irrigation, uh, the, the the berries uh, shrivel into raisins. So yeah, it's it's it is serious. It really is serious. Yeah. How do you think the Dura is going to change over the next fifty years? I mean, you're quite outspoken too about the economic threats that are facing the valley, aren't you? Well, I think there'll be two big changes. One, one is um, the we are still suffering from the hangover of Salazar, who was the, this long, long uh, dictatorship um, that I grew up under. Uh, it didn't affect me very much, uh, but I, but you know, my all my Portuguese cousins, uh, um, you know, I know a Portuguese citizen, and uh, but I, I he he basically had this bizarre idea that Portugal was this sort of idyllic. Uh, rural economy. I mean, it's sort of bit bizarre, really. But um, it did mean there was a lot of people to work in the vineyards. And now uh, we're in the EU. People in the Dura can jump on a Ryanair and go to, you know, Paris or anywhere and get a job. Um, and and people are taught English from uh, uh, from first year of school. So yeah, the schools are good. The universities are good. So people leave. And I think that the Dura is going to go through a massive change. Uh, uh, because we were bought up to make cheap ruby port alongside our great vintage ports and LBVs and old tawnies. And that cheap ruby port has no future at all. And cheap red wine from the Dura has no future at all because our yields are so low. Um, and, um, you know, I just got, I, uh, I just got the yields here. I mean, the average yield in France is, is 7.6 tons per hectare. Uh, Italy's 10. Um, Australia's 12 and South Africa's 16. Our average yield per hectare in the Dura is 3.6. Well, I mean, we're just off the scale. Yeah. But my dad never thought about that because, you know, it, 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 there were plenty of people to help pick and, and, and prune and, and keep the weeds down and all of that. Now, now we, we, we're going to have to, we're already paying really high and we're still getting, um, a lack of labor. So, so we, there has to be a real mind shift away mm. from trying ever to produce cheap wines or cheap mm. port. It's, it's gone. It's premiumization, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, or, 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 or there's no future at all. Yeah. And I'm afraid there's still some very cheap wines around um, and uh, it's not doing us any good. Um, and that brings us on to the second part of your question, which is the regulation. Because I, I'm absolutely furious about this. Um, we, we're highly regulated. It dates back to Salazar and his dictatorship. But uh, port is uh, rather like champagne, actually. Champagne, funny enough, they didn't have a dictatorship, but they're French, so they do the same thing. And um, the, the, there's a yield per hectare uh, established in champagne, 
And we have something very similar here. Um, in July every year, I as a farmer and all our, our, our family vineyards get a license issued by the Port Wine Institute saying this year you can make X into port. And that's been a, the practice for half a century and more. And, and so the, the volume of port is carefully regulated according to total stocks. And we have to have at least three to one stocks. So we all hold enormous stocks. But it's a very carefully regulated system that works well. And what it does is it holds the price for the farmers. And there are 20,000 farmers in the Douro. Um, and and they, they, they rely on their, obviously, their survival, on their economic survival, on their grape price. But the Douro, there were no rules made for Douro red wines or white wines. So the, the Douro red wine price floats up and down just like, you know, price of potatoes. And it's a market price. Hmm. And, but the trouble is, is because the port price is held up, the dough wine price is much, much lower. And the, the grape prices are transacted at less than half the cost it makes to grow them um, and the direct costs. And that's outrageous because it means that there's cheap wines all over the place here in Portugal and abroad, um, which is giving a completely the wrong impression. And, and, it, and, it, and it's wrecking the farmers. And I believe... Uh, um, that they, we need, if we have a regulated port system, then we need to regulate. I, I normally I do, wouldn't want regulations, but um, <laughs> and, uh, would want an open market. But but the, the survival of the Douro is dependent on that. I thought a lot about it, and the government has been absolutely useless. And I've made myself a bit unpopular. Uh, the editor of the main Portuguese paper, the Publico, uh, lives near here, here, and he's a good mate, Manuel Carvalho. And I wrote a two, uh, he gave me two whole pages in the main national paper only four years ago, and he published it. And I got a lot of support saying this has to change. It's outrageous. But the government they've done they commissioned a report. Yeah. It confirmed everything I and others had said, and they've done sweet FA since then. <laughs> so it's, we're in the middle of the, it's an ongoing battle. Yeah, yeah. Listen, last question, because I know that you're, you're a busy man. Just you retired as the chairman of of, of Symington Family Estates in 2018. You've said there was this 65 year old rule. You're still extremely fit and healthy. Um, how are you spending your time now? I mean, other occasionally talking to people like me occasionally <laughs> for a bit of fun. But, you know, you got your own vineyard, haven't you? Which is Quintalas Netas. I can't imagine you with your feet up in a deck chair. Um, no, I I love I love being at my place. I mean, I, all this weekend I was uh, there sorting out some stuff and helping. Uh, to sort out some of the olive trees. And I'm making our olive oil with my daughter because three of my kids are working the business, but the third doesn't, and she's in London. And uh, But we're, we set up an olive oil business with her. So I'm busy with that. I love being on my farm. I motorbike a lot with my... There's a, <laughs> a, 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 a Padre Antonio, a crazy local priest who's half my age, but he loves good wine, and he's a mean motorbiker. And we do off-road motorbikes. So <laughs> I go off with him most Saturdays, and we uh, end up um, at some dodgy restaurant eating cabrito, which is kid, with a lot of red wine. And I don't know how we get back. You definitely but don't. I've got a lot of friends thing, up there. That's not the kind of thing a pensioner does, is it? <laughs> I did fall off the other day and hurt <laughs> myself. My wife was furious. But um, no, I, I I love being in the Douro. Um, I'm, I'm, I chair the PFE, this European Wine Families thing, which keeps me busy. I'm on the board of the local university. Um, uh, which is a very good one, the Porto University. Um, I, you know, I keep myself busy. I got grandchildren, and as long as I can, I'll keep riding my motorbike. Um, <laughs> uh, so it's, it's fun. Yeah, yeah. 
Listen, Paul, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing your views uh, and your personality, your memories and your passion for Port and all things Duro and Portugal. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. Real pleasure, Tim. Thanks. Great to talk to a man with such a long connection with the Duro who's still passionate about its future. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is the award-winning wine photographer, Matt Wilson. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.